for ice cream this week. All right? They will take you for ice cream. Now, I, I ran this by two parents from the congregation, representative parents, and they weren't angry at me, okay? So, if you answer those four questions right now, here are the rules. If you are K through second grade, you are allowed to get help from your parents or your grandparents or whoever you're sitting with, all right? You're allowed to get help. You can also talk during service and get answers from your buddies, all right? And so I'm giving you permission to talk during my sermon. Is that exciting or what? All right? Only about the sermon, all right? Only about the sermon. You can confer with your friends, parents, just so you know. There's lots of ice cream options out there, but there are 49-cent cones at McDonald's right now, all right? So even for those of you with the largest families in the room, I have only got you on the hook for about three bucks, all right? But if you answer all those questions right, you talk to your parents about that, and it's ice cream time, all right? For those of you parents who are taking notes today, you can decide the prize you want to give yourself, all right? Now, turn with me, if you will, to the book of Matthew, chapter 4, and you hold your parents, and parents, if you can't afford that $3, you bring me a receipt, I'll write you a check. I mean it, but you can afford it. Anyhow, (laughs) don't bring me a receipt. Matthew chapter 4. And I, go ahead and, kids, if you got those sheets, read those questions in advance so you can be listening for, for uh, the answers to those questions. Now, you learn a lot about what's important to someone when you can figure out his or her primary message. Think about our last two presidents. They had a primary message when they were running. Do you remember George Bush's message? He was going to be the compassionate conservative. Do you remember that? Compassionate conservatism. It's like, I don't know, how long, 13 years later, I still don't know what that means. I really don't. That's not a political statement. I just don't know what that means. Uh, President Obama, do you remember? Hope and change. Still don't know what that means. All right? This is not a political statement. I just don't know what that means. I'm sure some of you have an idea. But I don't know what hope and change he was trying to bring to us, but uh, I don't know what that means. So it's one thing to hear somebody's primary message. It's another thing to decipher it. Now, what really scares me in the present time right now is the new Browns regime. The new Browns regime has a primary message. We want guys who play like a Brown. I've been thinking about that, because every time they sign a draft, or they sign a new uh, free agent, or they draft somebody, they say, we targeted him because he plays like a Brown. I'm glad they're new to town. Because if they'd been here for a while, that would be a very disconcerting statement. Because playing like a Brown means getting penalties in the worst situations, fumbling at the exact wrong moment when nobody's hit you. Playing like a Brown means forgetting who you were supposed to defend on the defensive side or block on the offensive side. Playing like a Brown is not a good thing. So they must mean something different when they say, we want guys who play like a Brown. Now, I've been listening, and I've been trying to read between the lines, and what I'm understanding is these guys want new players who come in here and who are mean and tough, but who are also smart. That's what their idea of playing like a Brown is. Now, we haven't seen any of that yet. (laughs) So that's the other part. Not only do you have to get somebody's primary message and, and understand it, You have to figure it out, what they really mean by that primary message, and then that primary message only matters if somebody actually lives that message out. Now, playing like a Brown, as we know, makes it look like you've never played organized football before. So we're going to have to work 
on playing that whole thing out. You see, it's one thing to acknowledge what the main goal is. It's another thing to live it out. And we should be really concerned, if we're really concerned about primary messages, that the, the number one message of somebody, what if we are Jesus people, if we are Christians, little Christs, what is Christ's primary message? Just by sheer volume, what is his primary message? Now, I asked a guinea pig this question the other day. I said, what is Christ's primary message? What does he talk about more than anything else? And you know what? I was, I was stunned. They got it right. They, they thought for a minute. They sort of turned their head, and they said, uh, uh, the kingdom of God? I said, right, right. Jesus, just by sheer numbers, talks about and preaches about the kingdom of God more than anything else. In fact, when you read the Gospels, you really get the sense that that is what he's trying to uh, accomplish, do, preach about, teach about. Whatever he's doing, it's about the kingdom of God. Both the Gospels of Mark and Matthew inaugurate Jesus' ministry, and the minute Jesus starts ministering, it says he began to preach about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Now, you're in Matthew 4, right? Did I send you there? Look at Matthew 4, 17 for a moment. This is the beginning of Jesus' mission, the beginning of his ministry. It says this, From that time on, Jesus began to proclaim, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. All right? So he begins to preach and teach this message throughout the region of Galilee. Then he goes and he, he calls his four disciples, who we know so well, uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John. He calls these guys. He says, follow me. And then look, what does it say again the minute he grabs disciples in verse 23 of Matthew chapter 4? Verse 23, and Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. All right, so that's how Jesus inaugurates his ministry. Same thing in Mark. Jesus says the time has come. Uh, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent. In Luke, in the same, same idea. He doesn't have him starting initially with that. Luke talks about Jesus going to his hometown and being rejected. But the minute after that, Jesus looks at the people around him and his disciples and says, I have to preach the good news of the kingdom to everybody. That's my job. And interestingly enough, even though John is such a different book in terms of its layout and the, the ideas that John wants to get across about Jesus, even in the book of John, the first teaching that Jesus does, the first thing he teaches about, he sits down with Nicodemus and tells Nicodemus how to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the first thing, John chapter 3, that Jesus talks about. So Jesus' primary message is about the kingdom of heaven. Here's the problem. If I were to look at you this morning and I say, give me a definition of salvation, most of you could rattle it off. You'd have one ready to go. If I were to say, give me a definition of the love of Christ, you could give me a pretty quick definition. If I said, uh, give me a definition of, of the biblical concept of serving, it would, it, would, it would roll right off your tongue. But if I just asked you, define the kingdom of heaven, now that takes some thinking. That takes a moment. I have an idea that if we were to do this in a vacuum, we would get, I don't know how many people are here today, probably around 200, we would get 200 different answers. I mean, we would not get, they were, they would be some that sounded alike, but we would get 200 specific answers. They wouldn't, they wouldn't sound all of them the same because it's a, it's a great big concept, and that's the issue. How do we decipher the kingdom of heaven? This is Jesus' favorite topic to preach on. This is, this is the big one. This is what Jesus preaches about more than anything else. Number one. And so I just want to, th that was for the kids. Number one. I, I just want to 
throw this out there. What is a good definition of the kingdom that we can work with? Now, a lot of times we operate under the misconception that the kingdom of heaven is just that heaven. That, that we don't realize or, or understand the kingdom of heaven until we all die and get to heaven. And that's a misconception. When you read the New Testament and you just read kingdom of heaven and think heaven, you're missing it. Because obviously, Jesus had work associated with the kingdom that he was inaugurating on earth. And so I don't know about you, but the way I read kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God for the longest time was to read it and think, well, he's just talking about heaven, some far off uh, idea that will, will eventually be here. But remember, we are praying in the Lord's Prayer, Matthew cha chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it already is in heaven. Think about that for a minute. So, so we're desiring that the kingdom come here, and Jesus at the beginning of his ministry is inaugurating it. So the kingdom of heaven can't just be heaven. Nor can the kingdom of heaven just be the church. I think the church is the organization, or, or the best organization, through which the kingdom of heaven can be displayed. But I know a lot of churches that don't look very much like the kingdom. I, I, I've seen a lot of things called church that don't look anything like what Jesus preaches about the kingdom. And not to say that, that, that the church is not the place that the kingdom takes place. I believe that it is. But the church cannot be reduced to the kingdom because the church is the organization of the people of God. The kingdom of heaven has, has a broader scope. And we can't say that the kingdom of heaven is the authority of God. We heard Pastor Cindy say it just a few minutes ago, uh, the idea that, that God is sovereign over all. Jesus rules over all. He has all authority, right? He has all authority. Nothing happens beside that which God or Jesus has given leave to happen. He has authority over all things. But the kingdom can't be his authority, and this is why. Because Christ does not always choose to exert that authority. God does not always choose to exert his authority. So the kingdom can't be his authority. Now you say, why are you, making, why are you splitting hairs here? I don't understand where you're going. Let me give you this concept of why the kingdom can't be the authority of God. I have the authority over my children, right? You would say, well, we hope so, right? Yeah, some days, yeah. Some... No, in my household, that, that's, the way that, that's the way it is. I have the authority. I'm the dad, both by, by the way God has structured it, by, by nature, by the fact that I'm big and they're small. I'm the boss, all right? Now, how many of you would deny that I have the authority? None of you. But is my will always followed with my children? See, no one would deny that I have the authority, but because of who I am as a father, because of my, my lack of omnipresence and omnipotence and all those good godlike qualities, because of my lack of those things, my will is not always followed. And of course my girls are sinful, of course they hit each other, steal each other's dolls, lie, all those things that children do, but sometimes they just do things that aren't sin that I'd rather not have them do. Sometimes I've had a stressful day and children running back and forth screaming at the top of their lungs is not my idea of a good time. But because I'm a loving father, I don't just squash that out, I don't exert my authority all the time, I let them be kids, right? So it would not be my will that my children would run around screaming. My will would be that they'd sit there quietly. <laughs> but they don't. Do you see the, the difference between authority and will? And that's what's going to bring me to my definition of the kingdom of God. Number two, my definition of the kingdom of God that we're going to use these next two weeks, and it's this. 
I believe that the kingdom of God is the extent, and this is not my definition, I stole this from Dallas Willard, the great uh, philosopher, and he's the one who wrote Divine Conspiracy, Renovation of the Heart. Uh, the extent of the effective will of God. Do you catch it? God's authority is overall, but the kingdom is the extent of his effective will on earth. Do you catch it? All right. So God's authority is overall, but he does not choose always to use that authority. He doesn't squash our free will. He doesn't take away that which makes us human. Instead, what is Christ coming to do? Christ is coming and saying, repent, turn your ways so that the will of God and his effective will, what he wants to happen on the earth, will take place through you. That's the kingdom. That we would change our ways so that the effective will of God would go into every corner of the earth. Now, I know that some of you are at that point right now that you are at the theological high water mark for the day. You, you have taken in all that you're ready to take in. You're ready for lunch. But I want you to actively listen with me for a few more minutes because we're going to work with this definition that the kingdom of God is the extent of the effective will of God on earth. Jesus was saying to us by inaugurating his ministry with repent for the kingdom of God is at hand or the kingdom of God has come near, he was claiming to have the unique authority to bring God's will to bear on earth. Think about that for a minute. He had the unique authority to bring God's will to bear on earth. That's who Jesus was. Now, it's real popular in non-Christian biblical scholarship. You know that it's out there, non-Christian biblical scholarship, to claim that right now that Jesus never thought of himself as divine. Later on, his disciples came along and deified him, much like the ancient Romans would have done uh, with their Caesar. You know, Caesar Augustus, he's now great, he's now deified. That the disciples somehow deified Christ later. I, I can't see that for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons is this right here. You have to believe you're sent from God if your initial message is, hey, I'm Jesus, I have come to inaugurate the effective will of God on earth. That's a pretty big statement. It's in me that the effective will of God will explode on earth. And think about it. You sit here today because Jesus was legit. When he said it, he was legit in that. He really did have the power to bring the effective will of God to bear on earth. And how did he do it? Through force of arms? No. How did he do it? By being the coolest guy in town? No. How did he do it? By, by, by putting himself in the most powerful nation and then rising to a place of prominence in that powerful nation so that he would have a great voice amongst the nations? No. What did he do? He just brought people around him and said, listen, I'm sent from God. I'm here to inaugurate God's kingdom, God's reign on the earth. Listen to me, follow me, then go talk about me. We'll get this thing done. It was crazy the way that he did it, but it was legit. Because you're sitting here, and I'm standing here, because the, the kingdom of God has been expanding since the day that Jesus set foot on this earth. And it's still expanding. Oh, we're in deep trouble. It's still expanding all over the earth. The reign of God is expanding. 
One of my favorite scholars of, the, of New Testament studies is a guy named R.T. France, and he's, he, he's one of the greatest scholars on the book of Matthew. And he says, you know what? He's, he's an Englishman, so he shares our language in theory, right? Englishmen and Americans, we talk a little bit differently. But he says one of the most unfortunate translations of the Bible, as far as he's concerned, is to, instead of calling it the king, instead of calling it the reign of God or the reign of heaven, we've translated it kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven. Because if we think really about the reign, we're really thinking about God's ability to have his effective will done on earth. But when I hear the term kingdom, I'm a boy, all right? I'm thinking of swords, knights, horses, castles. That's what I think about with kingdom. Now, I don't know what girls think about when they think about the word kingdom. But I think about all these things having to do with territory and violence and, and, and bloodshed. But really, what Christ is inaugurating is a greater reign of God on earth. We're going to bring God's effective will to bear on earth. We're going to bring a greater reign to God by what Jesus did and what we continue to do in the name of Jesus. So the question that we're going to be asking, and you're like, that's the introduction. Yes, that is your 20-minute introduction. That's the question we're going to be asking here over the next two weeks is this. If the kingdom of God is the extent of the effective will of God, are we positioning our lives to increase God's effective will? Are we positioning our lives to increase God's effective will, God's reign on earth? Now, you might want to turn over a page or two because I mentioned Matthew chapter 6 and the Lord's Prayer just a few minutes ago, but I believe it's very instructional on how we position our lives to, to increase God's effective will on earth. And what, what's the first thing that we are to do? Well, we are to pray about God's effective will increasing on earth. You all know the Lord's Prayer, and it's going to show up on the screen in the NRSV, which will throw everybody off, but we can say it in the old King James, can't we? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Stop. Think about that for just a minute. What do we do in the Lord's Prayer? Well, we acknowledge his otherness. Hallowed be thy name. You're the boss, God. And then what do we pray? We pray that his reign would come and that his will would be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Meaning, God's authority matches his will in heaven. In heaven, God's authority matches his effective will. What God wants happens. Here on earth, our desire now is to pray that what God wants to happen on earth happens on earth. That's what we should be praying. And what does that mean? Well, it means that we're acknowledging that he has all authority, that he has not squashed our will and our ability to make our own choices, but by praying that prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what we're really praying is God make our wills subject to your will so that your kingdom would come. Take my will, I'm giving it to you. You gave me my will in the first place. You gave me my freedom in the first place. I want to give it back. Take my will and do something with it. And not only that, Lord, I, I don't even mean just my will. Take other people's will and take it away. Take other people's will away and just exert your authority, will you? 
That's what we're praying. So we're not just praying for us as individuals. We're not just praying that the kingdom would come in our own little sphere. We're, we're asking God to increase his effective will all over. Not just in our homes, not just in our families, not just in our churches, not just at our work, not just in our city, not just in our state, not just in our country, but in the entire world. We are praying that God would take captive the will of others in order that his effective will might explode on this earth. Because when God's effective will explodes on this earth, we are as we should be. And I want to be as I should be. Not what I am, but what I should be, what I was created to be. I want my family, I want my community, I want my church to be as God wills it, not as we will it. And that's what Jesus is about. He's saying, I have come, and I have the unique power, the unique authority, to take the effective will of God and slam it into the earth through the lives of those who would follow me. And that's why we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, increase your reign, expand it. We each have decisions to make every day, whether we're going to love, trust, and serve God, or despise, distrust, and spurn him. We have that choice every day. But the choice goes one step further. It's not just whether we love, trust, and obey God, or despise, distrust, and spurn God. But here's the greatest thing that can happen for a human being, and I'm just going to throw it out to you. It's not just about loving, trusting, and obeying God, but it, the effect of that is what's the greatest thing that can happen as a human being. The effect of that is that God has designed this thing, and you read about it all through the scriptures, it's called human agency. He allows you to be his agent. You, when you love, trust, and obey Jesus Christ, get to participate in the greatest drama that has been played out in the history of the world. Your life takes on meaning so much greater than the little proximate meaning you give it today. God has given you the ability to take part in the story of his glory. He's given you the right and the capacity to be his agent on earth to help expand his kingdom. And that is exactly what you were designed for. In the name of Jesus, your life can take on meaning. Without the name of Jesus, your life just takes on whatever meaning you choose to give it. That's why Jesus was unique. He gives you the ability to take part in God's story. And each one of us, if we desire, have the ability to take, place, take part in the story of God. That's the kingdom. You get to be an agent of the kingdom. You get to do that which God has put you on this earth to do. What greater gift could God give us than a place in his plan? What greater gift could God give us than a place in his plan? So what's our place? Well, our place, I believe, is as growth agents. Now, where do I get that from? Turn a few more pages, if you will, to Matthew chapter 13. All right. What is our job here on earth? Well, we're growth agents in the kingdom. 
Matthew chapter 13 is where Jesus t tells a bunch of parables about the kingdom, and we'll be talking about some more next week, but I just want us to focus on three or four verses here that are very instructional. How many of you know the parable of the, of the seed and the soil? You know what I'm talking about? Four different types of soil, along the path, along the rocks, amongst the thorns, and in the good soil. Does anybody think want to say, I have no idea what you're talking about? Okay, good. Even if you don't, ask somebody later, because we've got to move quick. All right. Four different types of soil, right? Rock or along the path doesn't do so well. Go scatter some seed on your street today, see how it does. All right? In, in the rocks, go scatter some seed today, see how it does. Among the thorns, go scatter some seed today, see how it does. But Jesus says there's a fourth type of soil. That's the good soil, and the good soil is the ones who have listened to the message of the kingdom. All right? You following? The good soil is the soil that has listened and wants to obey the message of the kingdom. And this is how Jesus characterizes the good soil. You know, the people that, the, the, the soil that you'd want to identify with in verse 23. But as for what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears and understands it, the word of the kingdom, who hears and understands the word of the kingdom, who indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. That's the good soil. The soil not just that sprouts up and says, look at me. Aren't I a beautiful plant in the kingdom of the Lord? Me and my solitary self. No, that our lives would become a tree that bears lots and lots of fruit for the kingdom. In some cases, you got a hundredfold. In some cases, you got sixtyfold. In some cases, you got thirtyfold. Now, we talked about that concept before, but that concept is very simple, and it's, it's just this. We don't all have the same work to do. And we're all not going to have the same effect in the kingdom. But we all have a capacity that the Lord wants us to reach. And we need to position our lives to affect people for the kingdom of God. It's about exponential growth, folks. Look down at verses 31 and 32. He put before them this parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of the seeds, but when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Have you ever seen a mustard seed? Very, very small. Not very imposing. Easily lost. But when sown, can become quite the shrub. All right? Now, I don't know what that means to you. I don't know what you got growing in your backyard, but think about it for a moment. All right? And then look at this last one. He told them another parable, verse 33. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed with three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Three measures of flour, oh, that's only like 60 pounds. 60 pounds of flour. Why is Jesus making such a, a radical number here? Why did he just say mixes into a bowl of flour? He's trying to say that's the, that's the nature of the kingdom. It can be very small. That agent, that yeast, can be a very small part of the batch, but it can sure take over the batch, even enough to feed a whole village. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. What's your job? Number three, what's your job? As someone who has heard the message about the kingdom and is the good soil, your job is to be someone who participates in the exponential growth of the kingdom of God on earth. You're a growth agent. You're a growth agent. So what we'll be talking about primarily next week is this. How do we increase the kingdom in our own lives? How do we do that? But I don't want to leave you with a little application today. I want to give you a few quick points, and I know we're nearing time. First, Christ gave us 
an amazing thing. He gave us something that we call the Lord's Prayer. And remember, we need to pray for the kingdom of God to increase. It turns our hearts towards taking our will and making it pliable and to, to put it underneath the will of God. And it also releases the power of the Holy Spirit to take others' will and make it subject to the will of God. We need to be praying that the will of God would increase on earth, that things would be as they should be. We need to remember that we're a growth agent. How many of you woke up in the past week and said, Lord, I'm an agent of your kingdom. Help your kingdom to grow and expand through my life today. No, you woke up and ate Cheerios. You know? You woke up and just went about your day. There has to be cognition of the fact that your life has the opportunity to take part in the great plan of God. You get to be part of his kingdom. You're an agent in the kingdom. And I also want to mention one more thing and turn back to chapter 4. I'm not, I'm not going to read anything to you. Just turn back to chapter 4. I want you to see something. Do you remember how I showed you verse 17 and verse 23? Do you remember that? Jesus began to preach the kingdom of God, and then he did something, and then it says again, and then he began to preach the kingdom of God. What did he do? He looked at individuals and he said, follow me. He said, follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. That's what's in the middle of those two statements about Jesus preaching the kingdom of God. He looked at individuals and he said, follow me. I mentioned that that definition of the kingdom was from Dallas Willard, who's gone on to be with the Lord. And I want to read you a quote of his to sort of wrap up where we've been today. And it is this. Dallas Willard said, The greatest issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs is whether those who by the profession of their mouths or by culture are identified as Christians, will they become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. That's our setup. That's how you expand the kingdom of God. That's how you become a growth agent. You become a student of Jesus student of Jesus. And that's the call this week. That's what you're to do between this Sunday and next Sunday. You are to pray today, Lord Jesus, make me your student. Make me your disciple. As Pastor Cindy preached a few weeks ago, not just a fan, but a disciple. Lord Jesus, show me how to better learn from you. Your job is not to do everything that Jesus did. He was unique. But your job is to learn to think and act like him when the Holy Spirit prompts you. That's your job. That'll explain the kingdom because you know what? Jesus is the kingdom. He brought it and he's going to bring it to its fruition on that day that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess on earth and above the earth and below the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Let's become growth agents by becoming students of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, some of us, day by day, are dispensing with the greatest gift you've given us. Yes, you've given us life and salvation, but Lord, that gift comes with something just as great, meaning purpose, part of the plan. 
that when we're praising you forevermore in heaven, Lord, we'll be able to say, Lord, we were part of your plan. We were, we were part of what you designed this earth to, to be and to be redeemed for. We were part of it. Lord, I pray this week that we would say, Lord Jesus, make us your disciples. Help us to know you better. Help us to learn your heart, learn your mind, learn your ways so that, God, we can affect the world and bring the effective will of God to bear around us. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would begin a sovereign work in us today as we let our will be made subject to your will. We ask these things today in Jesus' name. Amen.